Okay, let's hope that, well, maybe turn me down a little bit, Marvin. Um, please and thank you, that would be great. Okay, so if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. But I'm just going to give you a quick summary of Ephesians. Ephesians is a really, really great book. Whether you're new to faith, veteran of faith, whether you're young, whether you're old, regardless of your stage of life, Ephesians is a really compact book that essentially, um, well, in, in, in very few chapters, only six chapters, gives an excellent overview of what it means to live in response to Christ's grace and love. It's, it's a great little uh, track on what it means to live the Christian life. It's a huge summary. Uh, some people have called it the Book of Romans light. It's got a shortened, condensed version. It's a Coles notes on the Christian faith. And that means if you're ever in a stage of life where you're just stuck, where um, there's sometimes layers of just complexities that can happen in life, and we all need times where kind of like a car going in for a tune-up, we just need a spiritual tune-up. We just need back to basics, uh, clear teaching on who we are in Christ, what it means to live for Christ with some good practical instructions. Ephesians is an awesome, awesome book. You could come back to it regularly, even once a year, uh, and just read through it. It's six chapters, maybe takes about 20 minutes to read at a, a fairly um, reflective pace. It's not long. The first three chapters just hammers home that you have been saved by grace. This is what God has done for you. This is who you are in Christ. This is what you have access to, not because of any good thing that you've done, but because of God's grace, because you simply embrace Christ. Then the last three chapters are kind of teasing out, okay, because this great salvation has come into our life, because God has done these things for us, how should we live? And so you just get this awesome, inspirational a laundry list of biblical principles that come out of the gospel, out of the good news of what God has done in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it just hits on so many different facets of life. And, you know, I was reading through uh, Ephesians uh, this week, and I just thought there's just nobody, there's no Christian who wouldn't, be, who wouldn't benefit from just regularly even just moving through Ephesians on a read. It's an excellent, excellent resource that will give you kind of a tune-up and help you drill down into the implications of being a Christian. Now, uh, we prayed through Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 20, so I'm not going to read through that passage again, but this is sort of the momentum that's building as we move into our text today. Um, Paul is talking to the Ephesians, and he's outlining all these principles that he wants them to kind of flesh out in their life as a community. And we prayed through some of them. Following God, God's example, walk in the way of love, live as children of light. You know, don't, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, seek to understand what God's will is. So these are these big gospel-driven ideas that Paul is commanding the first Christians to take seriously. And so we should. And to, and to kind of creatively think, oh, I wonder what that looks like in my situation in my marriage, in work, on my sports team, in my classroom, in my volunteering efforts within my community. But he doesn't just leave them at a very, very high level of, of abstraction. Uh, starting in, uh, at the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he drill, he's starting to say, okay, this is what these principles are going to kind of look like. And he begins to focus on the household where most people spent their life where livelihood, kind of work and life were kind of combined into the household. There wasn't the same 
um, distinction between home life and work life. They were kind of together in a first century context. So he says the relationship between spouses, between parents and children, and slaves and masters, which, spoiler alert, we're going to get to a long end around to kind of recognize there's a good analogy there between employer and employee. So in your work life, this is, uh, these, are w these are emphases that we each need to bring to the table if we want to have distinctively Christian and life-giving households, marriages, parenting relationships, if we want to understand what it means to honor Jesus as an employer or as an employee, these are the principles that you have to be kind of aiming at and striving towards. So the last uh, few weeks that we were in Ephesians, we talked through um, uh, husbands and wives and, and uh, parents and children. And now we get to Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, which is an interaction between slaves and their masters. So I'm going to read the passage. Verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, some of you might have thought, couldn't have gotten any more controversial than wives submit to your husbands, and then here we are. Slaves being asked to obey their earthly masters. We're addressing this passage, which at first pass looks like it seems to be kind of comfortable with the idea of slavery. And this is something that modern critics of the Bible, those who want to try and undermine the authority of Scripture or dismiss it outright, are bringing to the forefront more and more. New atheist uh, Sam Harris writes, Consult the Bible, and you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. And so Harris makes statements like this that are intentionally provocative, that are intentionally designed to offend modern sensibilities and say, well, then I would never worship a God who's okay with slavery. Uh, and if the Christian God is okay with slavery, therefore I should reject my faith. And if the Christian God is okay with slavery and I'm not okay with slavery, then I could never worship God that's morally inferior to me. So these statements are designed to cast doubt and suspicion on uh, not just what the Bible says, but who the God of the Bible is. And the question becomes, if we as civilized humanity, if we've now come to a place where we condemn slavery, why should we worship a God who thinks that it's acceptable? So I want to show you a little brief clip of Sam Harris interacting on this issue for about two minutes with Orthodox Jew Ben Shapiro. An inconvenient fact that slavery is endorsed in the Bible. It's, it's explicitly endorsed in the Old Testament, and it's, it's certainly not repudiated in the New, right? And you know, Jesus told 
slaves to serve their masters and to serve their Christian masters especially well. So there's no place in the Bible uh, where you can get a, a truly compelling case against slavery because the creator of the universe clearly expected slavery to be a human institution. Well, except for abolitionists finding enough inspiration in the Bible they, to use they it they as did their that main despite, text. But they, they did that despite what's in the Bible. Well, I think, I think that that is, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, this, this shouldn't sound insulting because it's not meant as an insult. I think that from a religious point of view, that's, an ins, that's, that's a simplistic reading of the Bible's role in, in human affairs, meaning that when any written document is given to any group of people. It has to be given to people in a way that they can understand. It's not that slavery was endorsed by the Bible, it's that slavery is universal among human civilization until it, modern it, times. But it was, no, no, there were, there are religions that have different points of view on all these questions, right? So it was possible in the fifth century BC to have a, a take on ethics with respect to something like slavery uh, or the killing of you know, combatants or non-combatants. Um, that was quite a bit more modern and ethical and 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 civilized uh, than was found that is found in the Bible. So I mean, you take take I mean, they, you might not like some of their other commitments, but take something like Jainism, right? I mean, Jainism. I mean, Gandhi got his nonviolence from Jainism. I mean, Jainism is just in truth a religion of peace, unlike Islam, which is is you know the the, the word peace is a euphemism for the word surrender there uh, or submission. So uh, it's, you know, it was possible for people 2,500 years ago to, to wake up one day and even write a book which suggests don't harm anyone or anything, even a, even a cricket. Right. right. Well, that's, I mean, that's fine. But yeah. the question is, how many converts does Jainism have? Meaning that the, the point of if you're going to give a book over, if, let's say that, let's pretend that you thought that God existed and that you, and that you were he. Uh, and it was and it was your job to convey to a group of human beings what you think morality should be, understanding that they're going to take that and develop that because we do have this gift of human reason that we use to develop things. And so yeah. there's a root text, and then it is developed over time. Wasn't sure exactly where to cut off that debate. It's over an hour long. It's really, really excellent. You can um, watch the whole thing on YouTube. But I wanted to give you a sense of just the disdain that Harris has for Scripture or the God of the Bible. And he would put that God, obviously, in quotation marks, because he sees one of the morally insurmountable issues with accepting Christian faith uh, that with this kind of um, condoning and acceptance, and maybe he would even argue encouragement, to um, hold and keep slaves and to be pro-slavery in that sense. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you remember uh, when I talked on uh, wives and husbands, I talked about the two major factors when it comes to hermeneutics. We talked about taking scripture seriously, and then we talked about context. And that those need to be really, really both uh, sussed out and understood deeply and well so that we don't misread and misapply scripture. And these five verses are a really powerful example of why we can't just, even well-intended, read the scripture, not do any other homework or, con or contextual understanding of where it was written, why it was written, how these words are being used. Because during the transatlantic uh, slave trade a number of centuries ago, where Africans were kidnapped and enslaved in brutally inhuman ways, there were people who read these same verses took them seriously and said, oh, see, 
the Bible is okay with what we're doing. And one American scholar says, there were American slave owners who argued the kind of society that they were building through slavery wasn't just a new and better world, it was a distinctively more biblically Christian one because we were using slaves, which, you know, as one of the proof texts, Ephesians uh, 6, 5 to 9, endorses us to do. And so this is a really good example of why we need to take Scripture very seriously, but also understand the context in which it was written because, and that's important to do all the time, but it's especially important to do in scriptures that very clearly have an opportunity to be exploited over and against other people. Texts such as, this text, Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, were used to bolster the case of those who said, slavery, maybe it's not an ideal thing, but like, it is what it is, and there's certainly a Christian way to do it. And so we have to understand what is actually going on in this passage. Because it is possible to extraordinarily misunderstand it and misapply it. And if we don't understand what's going on, then arguments like Sam Harris's, as generally superficial as they actually are, because he hasn't done his homework, and you know that because he's saying things like Jesus talked about slavery and, death, and Jesus doesn't say anything about slavery one way or the other. Right? He's, he's kind of jumping all over. But those arguments will sound convincing to us. So we need to know scripture. We need to know what's going on around this passage because I would say a lot is at stake. Okay, so what's the deal? How are we supposed to understand this passage, apply it? Let me start. This is a huge rabbit hole. In next week's summit, I'm going to list a number of videos and just good one-off articles. You don't need to go through all of them, but I'm going to throw a bunch out there that do a really good job uh, of explaining some of the nuances and context and understanding this stuff. You can spend, and I did, hours and hours and hours. It's a huge rabbit hole, very, very fascinating, but I don't want to clog up three or four Sundays with this. I just want to give you a bird's-eye view of the least you need to understand about the Bible and slavery so that when you hear arguments like that, the Bible condones slavery, the Bible's okay with slavery, you at least have this scriptural spider sense to say, mm, I, that, I don't think so. I heard something once, or I heard a teaching on that, or yeah, I think we're talking about different things. So here are four things that you need to know. Number one, slavery was pervasive throughout the ancient world. Until very recently, almost every society of any note presumed part of a functioning society was, included slaves. Slaves were an economic class, they were often a social class, and they were often large in number. And societies were structured around slavery for the most part. Now, when we come to um, the laws for Israel, we'll find out that was different. But in almost every other uh, pagan culture, slavery was the presumed norm. So part of why the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament addresses slavery is because it's not trying to reinforce something new or to say, hey, here's an idea. It's speaking into a current situation. It would be um, kind of similar to if Scripture was still being written today and I was going to talk today about something to do with fossil fuels. But in the future, 500 years from now, there was technology that 
allowed you to bypass getting energy from fossil fuels. And Christians 500 years from now, looking back at a letter that I had written to the Nelson Church about proper fuel usage and ways to reduce your carbon footprint, looking at it and saying, why are these guys talking about fossil fuels? This is crazy. But for us, it's not crazy. It's just where we are. And where we are, we have to figure out, given our context, how do we grapple with the issue of environmental responsibility well? So everyone would have expected slavery to be addressed by any movement that wants to take itself seriously. Slavery was pervasive. Now, part of that was because, point number two, often, not always, but often people became slaves voluntarily to pay off a debt or to simply stay alive. Slavery had a wide, um, there's a wide spectrum of what it meant to be a slave. But that was very different than, let's say, modern transatlantic slavery, which was abusive, which was forced, was forced kidnappings, brutal beatings. It, it, it was often meant to be perpetual. Ancient slavery, not in every case, especially not for prisoners of war. If you're a prisoner of war, they wouldn't throw you in prison. They'd just make you work the salt mines until you died. They were like, well, you're a prisoner. We're not going to pay for you to have three square meals a day in a jail cell. You're going to do work for us. The hardest work, but you're going to do it. So I'm not, I don't want to cast the light that slavery was somehow not a big deal. But many people went into slavery because in almost every culture, slavery served as a kind of social safety net. If my family owns land, we have a bad harvest, I couldn't go to a bank or take out a loan on my line of credit and say, hey, I need something to tie me over. I had to go to people around me. And what I would do is I would say, hey, Clanks, you've had a, a bumper crop this year. Could I, could I sell myself as the father of my family or our whole family to you? We'll work for you so that your extra crop can go to us and we're entering into an economic exchange so that I can live because most societies, until very recently, were agrarian, and they were one bad harvest away from losing everything. So many people became slaves voluntarily. There's even records, and certainly in the ancient world and in Rome in Jesus' day, of people becoming slaves to better their station in life. Because they said, if I sell myself into slavery to this person, they treat me really well. And we have on record people in the first century, physicians who were slaves, educators who were slaves, um, uh, uh, private educators of high-level uh, political figures in Rome were slaves. So slavery didn't have the same... Uh, you couldn't just say all slaves were abused, demeaned, it was involuntary, it was forced. That definitely happened. But slavery had a broader meaning, and it also included people who contractually agreed to go into slavery in order to secure a future for themselves. So one of the reasons why in the Old Testament and in the New, we don't see just blanket calls for, nope, should be no slavery. Because that would be like us saying, no social safety net, done, nope. If you don't work, you don't eat, full stop. What about people with disabilities? Nope, nope. See, we think of slavery as the abusive, harsh, dehumanizing kind, and that did exist in some 
instances, but slavery was a bigger word that just encompassed people who were indebted to others and who were reliant on them to be employed, in a sense, under their authority to stay alive or to pay off a debt that they couldn't pay off otherwise. So it was a way to provide accountability. If I took out a loan and I couldn't pay it, I had to work for a certain amount of time to pay back the person who I lent money from. Or if a catastrophe befell my family and I couldn't feed them, we would sell ourselves into slavery to someone else who would look after us. So slavery in the Old Testament was more akin to a kind of bankruptcy protection or social safety net. And that's why the Hebrew term that is used, ebed, slave, is the same term for servant. So we're not as triggered by the word servant as slave. But slaves, because it was a voluntary thing, not all the time, but much of the time, I'm going to become a servant for this person so that I can stay alive. I need to pay off this debt, and I can do that with dignity. I can pay back what I've lost. It wasn't, wasn't necessarily even a shameful thing to be a slave because in some cases, yes, but not in every case. It was like, oh, a slave, you're a second-class citizen. It's just a person. Um, again, it's, it's not a perfect equivalent, but think about it in terms of someone who has to work a minimum wage job to make ends meet. You don't look down on someone like that. They're making the minimum wage. Some even might call them a, uh, a debt slave or a money slave, but there wasn't any um, dehumanizing element to it necessarily. This is someone who needs to take this work in order to make ends meet. Number three, the laws in the Old Testament existed to limit the mistreatment of slaves. The laws given to Israel, remember, God takes a people out of Egypt, says, I'm going to make you into a nation. Every nation needs laws. So God gives his people laws and say, this is how I want my nation to run. And the laws given to Israel regarding how they're to treat their servants or slaves as a nation drastically limited the abuses that slaves could endure. And if you look at those laws that were given by God to Israel in the context of all the other slave laws and what were permitted by pagan societies around them, there's no parallel. They were the most progressive, humane, um, helpful, beneficial laws that were actually there to protect slaves. Slave, no matter how much they owed, they could only be a slave for six years. In the seventh year, you got released. Slaves had to be given the Sabbath off. That's part of the Sabbath command. You're, you're not allowed to work your slaves on a Sabbath. Um, a slave that was devoted to their master could stay with their master. Exodus 21 presumes that people in Israel who take on slaves treat their slaves so well that when the debt gets repaid, many of them will say, can we just keep this arrangement going? It's great. I do fair work. I get well compensated. Honestly, I, I can't do better on my own. So let's just keep this going. God says, no problem. You can get a piercing in the ear that says, you know, the strong family is now perpetually pledged to the clanks because that's just been such a harmonious, awesome relationship. Exodus provides occasions that if anyone kills or injures their slaves severely in Exodus 21, verses 20 and 26 and 27, that the master receives the death penalty. So because you own slaves, 
you were accountable before God. That was something that didn't exist in the pagan societies around them. Slaves, uh, in many cases, were seen as little more than tools for you to use at your disposal. But God says, no, it's going to be different with my people. Slaves were allowed to gain back their freedom. And all through the book of Deuteronomy, before the nation of Israel goes into the promised land and the law gets reiterated to that next generation who's alive after the 40 years of wandering and that generation dies out, one of the refrains that happens again, 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 over and over in Deuteronomy is in the context of giving these commands, Israel, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you were slaves. And that is meant to inform how they understand what it means to be a people who are going to have servants underneath them. Now, Sam Harris is going to hear that argument and say, yeah, but if there really is a God and and he's the God that you claim him to be, these divine laws should have been uh, evidence that they come from the ultimate highest moral aspiration. So they just should have said no slavery. But again, practically, um, you do that and you're eliminating a social safety net to that culture. And you're going to just create a huge amount of misery at best or mass starvation at worst. So that's a practical point. But the second one is a lack of understanding of what the law of God is also supposed to do. The law of God isn't, also, isn't always pointing to the ideal. There are laws that are designed to prevent bad situations from getting worse, right? Many of God's laws are meant to limit abuse or mistreatment. They don't point to what God wants. They're saying, given the state of the world and of your hearts, I'm putting this law in place so, so things can't get any worse. For example, divorce laws in the Old Testament. There are laws for divorce in the Old Testament. I've never heard the argument, there are divorce laws in the Old Testament? Oh, so God's pro-divorce. No. God says repeatedly throughout Scripture, one of the major themes is God hates divorce. But Jesus says to the religious leaders, um, when he's talking about marriage and about how God's ideal is a man and a woman coming together in one flesh, and they push back, they say, hey, uh, Moses commanded that we could give our wives a certificate of divorce. Like, that's in our law. Like, we can do that, Jesus. Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. It's not God's ideal, but divorce was a law given to the nation so that bad situations and abusive situations could be curtailed and not expand. And so, to quote slavery laws in the Old Testament as if God wants us to keep slaves is on par with quoting divorce laws in the Old Testament as evidence that God encourages or wants or is excited by or is completely okay with divorce. Many of God's laws in the Old Testament are restraining laws that speak to real issues and say, hey, if someone takes your eye, you're only allowed to go for their eye, an eye for an eye. You don't get to take both their eyes. They're restraining laws. Does God want us to go around plucking out each other's eyes? No, I've only got one left. Be careful. What God is saying is, let's limit vengeance so that it doesn't spiral out of control. And number four, in the Roman world, and I kind of alluded to this, slavery was not a death sentence. By the time of Jesus, the Romans obviously did not look to God's law 
to inform how they understood slavery. So in the Roman world, slaves could be anything from prisoners of war who were beaten mercilessly and used as tools in an inhuman way, but it could also move all the way up to respectable people, uh, people with respectable positions who were given all kinds of advantages, and some were very, very wealthy as slaves. If you had a wealthy patron, you could have a phenomenal uh, life and enjoy a lot of privileges. But slavery was a huge part of running society. There's all kinds of uh, estimations of what percentage of the Roman population were categorized as slaves. I think probably the most integral one and reasonable one is about a third. So at any given point in the Roman Empire, a third of the people were in slavery. Again, not necessarily chains around their necks working the salt mine slavery, but they were indebted to someone else and working to pay off that debt in order to stay alive. And so slavery in Rome, outside of prisoners of war who got brutal treatment, slavery looked, again, it's a dynamic equivalent, it's not perfect, but similar to a kind of employment due to economic reasons. It's someone saying, I can't make it on my own, I'm going to contractually enter into an agreement with this person or this family, and I'll do this work in exchange for this compensation. Now, that, sometimes that compensation wasn't very much, but it was enough to provide a safety net so that people didn't starve, who maybe didn't have the inheritance or the means to provide for themselves or their own families. Now, again, I don't want to idealize that and make it sound like slavery was no big deal we'll study a passage where Paul talks about if you're a Christian slave and you can gain your freedom, go for it. That's, not, that's great. So slavery wasn't an ideal, but it was a situation that the first Christians had to deal with because as people came to know Jesus, some came to know Jesus as slaves, and now they're a Christian slave with a non-Christian master. Some came, some masters and slaves became Christian at the same time, and they were like, oh, what does this mean? And some people became Christians who were masters and now had non-Christian slaves and had to think through, okay, how do we figure this out? And it wouldn't have occurred to them to just not do slavery. The practical ramifications were too great, and they didn't really have an Im imagination for it. Again, it would be like 500 years into the future, if Jesus hasn't returned, Technology evolving to where we don't need fossil fuels, looking back on Christians today and saying, saying they should have just stopped driving cars and airplanes and everything. They just should have stopped using fossil fuels. Why didn't they? They knew it was harming the planet to a greater or lesser degree. They should have known better. Well, we would say, we're trying, we're doing the best we can, but we're limited because of where we are. So we're trying to figure out how do we honor God given our current cultural constraints. We want to be good stewards of the planet, but we've also structured our society in such a way that if right now we all just pulled the plug on fossil fuels, it would just mean mass starvation. So we've got to figure out a wise way forward. And that's the way Christians addressed slavery as an institution when they came to grapple with it. Here's a quote that I think is really good uh, from uh, one person. We must remember that abolition, meaning the complete dismantling of slavery, just rejection of it. It was unrealistic and, and it was an unthinkable goal in Paul's age. The immediate emancipation of all slaves would have led to widespread poverty and starvation. 
Perhaps a third of the population was enslaved in the Roman Empire. Campaigns of civil disobedience were not possible under Roman law. Revolt would have ended in mass slaughter at the hands of Roman legions. And slavery did, did provide an important means of social support for those who fell into debt and poverty. Paul was no love, had no love for slavery, but he aims to moderate and subvert its practice rather than abolish it in one revolutionary sweep. And so the slavery as an idea, and especially as we think about it, as a system of exploitation and harm is clearly anti-God. It is clearly anti-Christ. It is clearly something that Christians should outright reject because what we think of as slavery tends to be a very dehumanizing, harsh, permanent, not voluntary, forced um, uh, situation that doesn't kind of easily comport with what slavery meant or could have looked like 2,000 years ago. But we know because of so many scriptural themes that any form of mistreatment and exploitation of another human being is wrong, full stop. Christians don't need to debate today whether or not slavery should exist as an institution. We can have good debates over should social safety nets be in place and what should those look like? That's a good discussion for Christians. But slavery, we can outright reject. Both Old and New Testament, all people are made in the image of God. Slaves were encouraged to gain their freedom. Paul says, were you a slave when Jesus called you? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Job understood that slaves were God's image bearers just as he was. Um, kidnapping in the Old Testament, forbidden under Mosaic law, not allowed to take someone, become a slave trader. And although it's kind of seemingly obscure, the New Testament recognizes slave traders. Uh, where am I here? Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah. In 1 Timothy uh, 1, verse 10, slave traders are grouped with lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the unholy and the irreligious. It, slave traders are grouped into people who are the very picture of what it means to live an anti-Christ lifestyle. And that reflects the Old Testament ban on kidnapping people. And again, if you just, you know, don't miss the forest for the trees. The Bible, I mean, one of the themes of the Bible, one of the, the you know, summation points is you could say, the Bible, the point of the Bible, its message is about a God who sets slaves free. That's one of the central plot lines of the Bible. The Bible is framed around the theme of slavery and bondage to sin and our emancipation and deliverance out of that slavery through Jesus. In the Old Testament, the big event that stands as the, oh, God is a freer of the prisoner is what? The Exodus. There's a whole book of the Bible called The Exit where God exited people out of slavery into freedom under his gracious rule. And in the New Testament, when Jesus comes and he goes to a synagogue on Sabbath, Saturday in his day, as was his custom, and he takes out a scroll and he's trying to say, this is what I'm going to be about. This is kind of my mission statement. This is what I've come to do. He quotes from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor, Jubilee, that year where debts are forgiven. Slaves can go free. They can start over. They literally have the weight of the debt of sin discharged so that they can move now into a life of freedom and joy in God. Think about Jesus' life. Jesus, what does he do? He comes into the world, bears the weight and slavery of our sin on the cross, suffers its full measure, and then is emancipated. He's freed from it in the resurrection. And Jesus, we celebrate as our redeemer. We talk about the God who redeems. Redemption's a big theme in scripture. One of the metaphorical ties of redemption And one of the metaphorical meanings is to buy a slave at a slave market in order to set them free. So someone purchases someone and says, I've paid your debt, now you're a free person. Go live a free life. That person's called a redeemer. They've redeemed that person. One of the major New Testament metaphors for what Jesus has done for us is he has redeemed us out from slavery to sin, discharged our debt, and now said, Go and live free. Not in a sense of, go, go, you do you, go do your thing, but come follow me into freedom and the newness of life. You no longer are a slave. I now call you friend. And so in conclusion, the Bible does not, Bible is not pro-slavery. It does not condone slavery as we think about it, which is the Bible is consistently and thoroughly against abusive relationships of all kinds, involuntary servitude, exploitive um, economic practices, any way of treating another human being that is dehumanizing or is fueled by an idea that you are better than them, a certain class of human being, and therefore deserve this kind of treatment, any kind of race-based discrimination or slavery, Bible is completely against these things because these were modern kinds of slavery that have some overlap with ancient slavery, but not enough that it's wise to read them as one and the same. But the Bible, when people say, doesn't the Bible condone slavery, our first answer should be absolutely not. Well, then why are these things here? Then we can go into and explaining why. The Bible reveals the gospel to us. And the gospel fundamentally changes how we interact and see other people. And it seems like God's strategy in giving his word to people at different times, and especially in the New Testament, is not to immediately affect social change, but to change and transform human hearts. Because if human hearts are changed, even if someone started out being a cruel, vicious master who owns slaves, once your heart gets touched by the gospel, and you realize that, oh, in Christ there is no slave or free. This person has full access to the same spirit as I do. They're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. How I treat them, love your neighbor as yourself. They're my neighbor, like they're literally in my household. You can see how the seeds are planted such that once people really begin to live into the vision of what Jesus has for them, the institution of any kind of an abusive slave relationship It just wouldn't be tenable in the same way that you would never be able to seriously grapple with a scripture like wives submit to your husbands um, 
and arrive at a place where you would say, oh, I can abuse my wife and she has to be obedient to that and she has to be submissive to that and she's a second-class citizen. You can't actually grapple with the ethic of Jesus and with the overall momentum in the text and arrive there. And so the, to the extent that the gospel transforms our hearts, practices like harsh modern slavery will vanish and it, it really did. And the only reason why transatlantic slavery could sustain itself was because slaves were given a special Bible. You know what the Bible was? It's called the Slave Owner's Bible. It was an edited version of the Bible. It didn't have all the parts of the Bible in it. And those were on, that was only for the slaves that could read. But once they were transported to America, there was a law put in place that slaves weren't allowed to read. Could you, do you know why... They don't want slaves reading? Because this is the most dangerous book. And this book will threaten anybody who wants to try and build a society or a way of life that sees other people as a means to an end, as tools, as less than deserving of all of God's grace and love. And so modern slavery, I would argue, was established and sustained not because of what the Bible said, but because the Bible wasn't taken seriously enough. And it was taken out of context. And when we, we read the Bible in its fullness, I think where we can get to as it relates, as this passage relates to us today, is this discussion of master and slave or master and servant is really about what we would think of as employer-employee. And so next week, what I want to do is I want to tease out what is said here so that we can bring the relevance and power of this text into the present. Because for many of us, we're in a situation where we are an employer or an employee, or even if we're at a stage of life where we are um, maybe no longer employed, we're retired, but we still volunteer, and that makes us under the authority of someone else. So this passage has massive relevance, but I really feel like I needed to get out of the way, um, kind of that elephant of the room of what's going on here as it relates to slavery. So let's move in the next week. Oh, that was the other thing I wanted to have you do. Before next Sunday, read the book of Philemon in the New Testament. It's a little, it's hardly even a book. It's like a little few paragraphs. That won't take you 20 minutes to read. Really, really short. Paul's letter to a Christian master whose slave ran away, then became a Christian, joined Paul, and Paul is sending the slave back to the master. It's a super, super uh, short letter, but it has a really interesting, I'm going to kind of pick it up uh, with next week's sermon, but read that maybe several times before next Sunday, and watch how the spirit of Paul deals with slavery, and how he uh, undermines any kind of slavery that could be abusive or mistreatment. Super, super awesome. So Philemon, that's your homework for next week. Okay, I've said enough. That's a long sermon. Let's pray. God, your word is powerful, but we also need your wisdom to know how to handle it correctly so that we read it well, so that we understand it well, so that we appropriate it well, and we respond to it faithfully in a way that glorifies you. God, even this week as we read Philemon, maybe as we go back into this text, begin to mull over what does it mean for me to be an employer who honors Jesus? What does it mean for me to be an employee? 
just begin to give us experiences even this week, God, that begin to challenge us with those questions in a deeper way. Continue to drive the gospel and its truth into our hearts. Continue to keep us protected from uh, criticisms of your word that rely on us not being fully uh, aware of what the Bible actually says. Help us to go deep in your word so that our faith is protected from uh, superficial but sometimes convincing attacks. In Jesus' name, amen.